Okay, uh, welcome to LSE. Um, delighted to see you all here. Um, I'm also really delighted to welcome um, our two distinguished guests this evening. Um, Larry Gostin is a university professor at Georgetown University, where he directs the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. He's also Professor of Medicine at Georgetown University, Professor of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University, and Director of the Centre for Law and the Public Health at, Public's Health at Johns Hopkins and Georgetown. Uh, Larry's also Director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Centre on Public Health Law and Human Rights, and his latest book is Global Health Law, uh, which has just been published and is available uh, outside, um, if anybody would like a signed copy this evening, at a special discount rate, I'm in reliably informed. The list of uh, Larry's honours and accomplishments is far too long for me to cover in a short introduction, but the one I found most intimidating on the website was that um, in an analysis of legal scholarship amongst all law professors in the US, Larry was ranked first for productivity. (laughs) So that's pretty intimidating for all of us. Richard Ascroft, on my immediate left, is Professor of Bioethics at Queen Mary University of London and co-director of the Centre for the Study of Incentives in Health. He's a member of the Ethics and Policy Advisory Committee of the Medical Research Council, Director of the Appointing Authority for Phase 1 Ethics Committees, and a member of the Royal College of Physicians Working Party on Tobacco. What's going to happen is that Larry's going to speak for about 25 minutes, then we're going to go immediately to Richard's response, which will be about 10 minutes, and then we'll have some time for questions, and we'll be finishing at 7.30. Okay, so with no more ado, over to you, Larry. Do you want me to stand up? Whichever you prefer. I think I'll stand up. Uh, Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Professor Jackson, for having me in the LSE. Um, My son went to the LSE, so I've got a special affinity for for this place. Um, My book, Global Health Law, has just been published by Harvard University Press. And what I'm going to do is talk about the final chapter. Uh, I want to begin by just reflecting on the fact that I've, even after the book was uh, published, I've noticed that there are two very distinct narratives in global health that are prevailing. And what reminded me of it is is that Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg have been on a charm offensive uh, uh, and uh, in developed countries, uh, basically saying how well we've done in global health Uh, And they're right. Um, We've done very well. Uh, Over the last 10 years, there's been a quadrupling uh, of funding. Uh, And in fact, even as of a couple of weeks ago, in spite of the economic downturn, the the amount of funding just ticked up. It's essentially flatlined now. But we've done extremely well on all of the Millennium Development Goal, health-related goals, uh, the MDGs, as everyone knows, is the major United Nations um, effort on uh, development. And the health-related goals have all seen market progress. Um, so, for example, in uh, maternal mortality, um, there's you know, something like a 40% drop. The same is true with under-five child uh, mortality. Uh, and the number of people uh, with AIDS on antiretrovirals is just over 10 million now. And for those of you who know the AIDS world, and many of you are young, so you may not, uh, that was unthinkable. And 
If you don't know the AIDS world, you might want to read the AIDS chapter because what I was able to do is just reflect at the incredible, um, uh, unimaginable uh, progress we've made in AIDS, uh, whereas we haven't made in mental health injuries and many other areas. Uh, the, uh, that, that's one narrative. Uh, the other narrative is a narrative uh, of civil society. Um, I, one of the founding ideals of my institute was a framework convention on global health, and we have an international uh, campaign for a global health convention, which Ban Ki-moon uh, has endorsed, Michelle Sidebe, the head of UNAIDS, has endorsed. Uh, but civil society feels that uh, life hasn't changed at all, that it's still hard, brutal, um, and very, very poor and unhealthy. And one of the things that I thought of doing for the book is having a forward um, by some luminary like Margaret Chan, who heads the World Health Organization, or, or Michael Bloomberg. Um, disclosure, I'm representing uh, Bloomberg in his soda portion litigation uh, in New York. Um, but uh, they said, no, don't do that. Nobody cares about uh, Bill Gates or Michael Bloomberg. Um, do figure out something else. And so I did, and it's actually the very, very best part of the book because I didn't write it. Um, what I did is I went around the world and I asked uh, uh, children, uh, or I had my, my civil society colleagues ask children just to tell us about their lives in their own words. And uh, I have many health narratives uh, in the beginning of the book, but I just want to read from uh, two very quickly. Um, one is uh, from Namibiru, uh, who is a, a young girl from Gaba, which is a suburb of uh, Uganda. And she writes, my mother has two children, a boy and a girl, each with their own father. I stay in a very rowdy place with no clean water, no good toilets or bathrooms. The toilets are shared by all universities, all students who stay around this place. I have to move a long distance every day looking for clean water to bathe, to cook. At night, the conditions worsen. There is hardly any electricity. The mosquito noise fills the air. Cockroaches move about me and make me sick as they crawl on me. And even when I fall sick, I hardly ever go to hospital. My mother, who would have helped me out with the medication fees, lives in the village far away, and she's living with HIV AIDS and so can't afford it. And uh, this young woman goes on to talk about the fact uh, that she and her friends have been raped and nobody does anything about it. Uh, and that's her life. It's her experience. And it's a far cry from what uh, the, the Gates narrative um, has been. Uh, and I think it's uh, important to point out that in, in the world of health, there are enormous health disparities. And we tend to think of those disparities between the developed and the developing world. But there are actually huge disparities within countries. In fact, many of the richest, healthiest, longest living people are in middle-income countries like Brazil, India, China, which also coexist with extreme um, ill health uh, and poverty. And so what I wanted to do is get a story from my own country, the United States, um, which I don't think is uh, too atypical for native uh, populations around the world or for many poor people around the world 
Uh, and this is Johnny's story. Uh, I do a lot of work with American Indians, and uh, particularly on Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. Uh, and this is a typically Yank story. I mean, you'll, you'll laugh because it sounds so American. I start my days with a cup of joe. Then I corral, ride, and break horses and smoke a bowl of weed about six or seven times a day if I have it. Otherwise, I smoke whatever shows up. It's a stress reliever. My father uses drugs. He snorts cocaine in front of me. He takes my birthday money. He even does a line of coke with me. And he uses alcohol since before I was born. My mother was also a drunkard, even when I was born, and it affected me. My dad is abusive to all of us children. He's verbally abusive, and he beats us with a belt. It's not a spanking, I mean a real beating. He backhands us all the times. It makes me mad when people in the community do heavy drugs. What I mean is, what little kids get to eat? Did they get their shoes or clothes they need? It depends on whether the adults do drugs. I know that can't be stopped, but it's unfair that grown-ups get what they want and the children do without. I hate my life. And that gives you an idea of a very, very different uh, narrative in global health. Uh, when I got to the last chapter of this book, I was uh, really immobilized and didn't really know how to conclude it. And the reason I realized that I was immobilized was simply by the fact that global health is so mind-boggling complex. I think the, the pro-research dean was saying when I said I was going to talk about global health and justice, she says, oh, well, that'll be easy, joking, because it is mind-bogglingly complex, and it actually freezes any, any conclusive thinking about what we might do. And so what I did, unapologetically, because the book goes into a lot of detail and complexity on ethics, law, policy, and health, influenza, tobacco, AIDS, the whole range, um, I wanted to oversimplify, intentionally oversimplify the problem. And I found that with this oversimplification, there's a certain clarity when you oversimplify. Uh, and so uh, without really apologizing, I want to suggest three very, very simplified, oversimplified questions. And if we could answer these questions, I believe we would go a long way toward dramatic, really dramatic improvements uh, in life outcomes um, for even the poorest people around the world. And essentially, these are the three questions. I'm going to deal with the first two, and you'll have to read the book for the third. Um, so the first question is, is, what would global health look like? I'll get to that in a minute. The second is, is that what would global health with justice look like? And the third is, how could we achieve global health with justice? Those are the three fundamental questions. So the first question, what would global health look like? It may seem like a silly question. But the truth is, is that if you look at all of our global health programs, nobody knows what success would be. What would success look like if we actually achieved a state of global health? Would it be having 15 million instead of 10 million people on antiretroviral drugs, or 20 million. That's most of the global health architecture defines success that way, the Global Fund, um, the PEPFAR, 
um, UNAIDS, WHO even? Um, would it be the eradication of polio? Polio has just been blipping up again, and I think I just read that a couple of days ago, um, uh, uh, Margaret Chan declared polio a uh, public health emergency of international concern. Really remarkable, um, particularly since uh, for two reasons. One, it's only the second time it's happened in the history of the international health regulations. The first one was influenza H1N1. Um, but secondly, is, is that a huge part of the budget of WHO and of the Gates Foundation and the Rotary uh, Club uh, is for polio eradication. So suppose we were able to eradicate polio. Would that be success? About five people a year die of polio. Um, or would it be making more progress on child maternal health or conquering XDR, extremely uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis, or malaria. But that's exactly the way that global health is organized. We organize it disease by disease, silo by silo. We have no idea what would success look like. And so the answer to this question, what would uh, an ideal state of global health look like, it would be achieving the conditions in which people can be healthy the classic public health definition. And what are those conditions? There are essentially three. There are others, but these three would, would, is almost everything. The first is universal health coverage, affordable, accessible coverage for everybody. That's what the WHO would like to see for the so-called post-2015 sustainable development goals that the UN is going through right now, which is the, pre the successor uh, to the MDGs. Uh, whether or not WHO will succeed in this is probably unlikely. It'll probably be a sub-target. Bill Gates is absolutely opposed to universal health coverage, um, and there's been a great debate around it, and the global health community is splintered. But certainly, having affordable access to all of uh, medications, uh, uh, primary care, and the like would be helpful. The second uh, is not health care at all. It's not medicine, it's not hospitals, it's not GPs. What it is is the classic population-based, not individualized-based clinical approach. Um, and so what is that? Um, that's um, hygiene, sanitation, uh, vector control, uh, tobacco control, alcohol control, clean air, clean water. Uh, and if most of the uh, success in public health in the developed world was actually not through medicine, but through this public health approach. Um, I don't know if any of you know um, Chadwick, uh, uh, the famous uh, 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 progressive era campaigner in the UK, or Shattuck in the United States, or Wieschau in Germany. These were all great thinkers that basically were Recalled and recoiled in horror at the Industrial Revolution because of the squalor, the filth, the sanitation. And they posited that if we actually just improve the sanitary environment, it's called the sanitary movement, um, we would gain great longevity and health. And we did. And developed countries do that today. And even though we only spend in the UK, the US, Western Europe, Australia, between 1% and 5% of all of our health pounds on, um, uh, on 
public health. Nonetheless, I've always posited there are certain things that developed country populations would never tolerate if they didn't have it. One of those things I, I posited it, hypothetically was you turn on your tap and uh, the water is completely contaminated. Uh, and it turns out that that hypothetical actually came true in the United States. Um, about a month ago or so, uh, the water in West Virginia became contaminated, and they put it on, and, and people were getting ill. It was on the front page of the New York Times every day. People, there are certain things we don't tolerate. We wouldn't tolerate filth in the streets, bubonic rats, malarial-infected mosquitoes, and yet we expect that it's perfectly all right uh, in the rest of the world as long as we give them antiretroviral medication or, or a birth attendant. Uh, we don't really intuitively insist in our global health efforts what we know to be true here. And so that's the public health uh, condition for health. The third condition of health is not, has nothing to do with the health sector at all. It's socioeconomic determinants of health. It's you know, the stuff that Michael Marmot at UCL does, which is basically uh, 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 posits that if you have employment, education, income support, things that are outside the health sector, but they have a huge beneficial health impact, and they do. People sometimes ask me, if you could do one thing for the health of the world, what would you do? I would say educate women. It would be very, very easy. Um, so health, uh, socioeconomic determinants are very important. Turns out, for example, if you go to, I don't know if any of you have been to Washington, D.C., but we have the red line that goes from poor southeast D.C. all the way up to the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. And for every stop on the red line, which you get progressively richer, life expectancy uh, um, increases about three or four years for every step on the red line. But it's not only income, it's also your social status. Turns out that if you're nominated for an Academy Award, you live longer than if you're not. And if you win, you live longer than if you lose the Academy Award. These are facts. Michael Marmot claims them. Uh, so what I, what I try to do in my global health project is try to show how we organize global health entirely the wrong way. Um, and that we have entirely the wrong goals. But I find it really hard to convince people of this, even though they may know it intuitively. Even civil society, if you ask them what they want, they want medicines, they want health care. Um, they don't want conditions that really will make them healthy. Uh, and so I thought of the way to do this would be a Rawlsian thought experiment. Everybody know John Rawls? Um, his veil of ignorance? I mean, at the LSE, I'm sure you do. My son went here, and he, he had John Gray, so I'm sure he knew who Rawls was. But basically, Rawls posited in his theory of justice, he said, if you put yourself in a veil of ignorance uh, and you answer a question, um, that you're likely to lead to the just result. And so suppose you don't know who you are. You don't know if you're uh, uh, a Londoner um, or uh, you're uh, from uh, Calcutta. Uh, you don't know if you're uh, white, black, red, brown. You don't know if you're rich or poor. You don't know if you're a male or female. Actually, roles didn't include male or female, but I do. 
you literally don't know what position you're in. And if I did that, and I gave you two stock choices, and you could only choose one of them, let's just do that thought experiment now. So the first stock choice would be you could have all of the health care you'd ever want. You could go to the finest uh, doctors, the finest hospitals, get any uh, genomic-engineered uh, medicine for cancer, heart disease, whatever it is that you want, you can have it, and you can have the best of it. Or you could never see a doctor again or a hospital the rest of your life. But you would wake up in the morning, you'd turn on the tap, and there'd be clean water. Uh, you would uh, eat, and there'd be nutritious, healthy food. Uh, you would go outside, and you wouldn't be attacked by malarial or dengue-infected mosquitoes or bubonic rats. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be filth everywhere. There'd be hygiene. There, w there wouldn't be dense uh, uh, pollution like in China or Delhi. Uh, and you would be able to uh, have no tobacco. You would have tobacco control, so you wouldn't be assaulted by tobacco, etc. In other words, you'd have the nirvana, either the nirvana of health care or the nirvana of public health. So who would choose number one? The health care. There's, there's sometimes one or two in the audience, but there's none here. Who would choose two? That's, I've done this everywhere in the world. I've done it in uh, Beijing and Shanghai. I've done it in Delhi. I've done it in um, Sao Paulo. Uh, I've done it uh, in uh, Washington, in Geneva. And even when I did it in Geneva last week at the World Health Organization, I had people who were the head of essential medicines and universal health coverage come up to me afterward and say, you know, I agree with everything you said. We could never say that at WHO. But it's intuitively obvious, and yet we do exactly the opposite. And what led me to this thought experiment was as follows. I came back um, from a typical sub-Saharan African city when I was thinking about the last chapter. And in that sub-Saharan city, I came back and I just was feeling so unwell. I got back to Washington, and I couldn't breathe. I was a little asthmatic. My stomach wasn't right. My uh, eyes, my throat was sore. Um, I, I didn't have malaria, although a lot of people who go there would get it. Um, I just felt bad. And I realized I felt the same way every time I come back from a poor Asian, Latin American, sub-Saharan African city. It just happens. But I've been in London a few days. I went to Oxford yesterday. I feel good. I go to Oslo. Fantastic. <laughs> I go to Melbourne. What could be better on earth? And it occurred to me that there are reasons for this. It's not an accident. One has a clean, healthy, good environment, and the other doesn't. Nothing to do with health care. It's not like I needed to see a doctor in, in, in Kampala or something and they weren't available. Um, it's just the fact that the environment means everything. And so that would, what would, be, that would be success from a global health point of view. Nobody talks about it. And our whole uh, institutional framework in global health is organized in the opposite way. And our money is organized in the opposite way. 
Um, we give almost nothing globally to the population health approach. We give almost nothing to mental health, to injuries, um, to non-communicable diseases. WHO uh, devotes about 4% of its budget to cancer, heart disease, respiratory disease, and yet 60% of its budget to AIDS, polio eradication, and infectious diseases, even though the global burden of disease is exactly the opposite. And so by funding, by global health architecture, and even by law, the international health regulations, the PIP framework, except for the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, there really is nothing that reflects what really is making the world ill. Uh, and so that would be what global health would be. So what is global health with justice? Global health with justice, and notice I don't say global health justice because they're two different things. One could plausibly argue very plausibly, as Bill Gates does, that we've made vast improvements in global health, but we haven't narrowed the disparities in global health, almost not at all. For some populations, like adult men uh, who are poor, um, the disparities are the same as they've ever been, and it'll take another 500 years before we close that gap significantly. Uh, and so how would we do this? Well, one way of doing it, of course, is that evil political word. Now, President Obama said that the, 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 the 1% uh, and the 99%, the Occupy movement, is the biggest issue facing the world today, and certainly the biggest issue in the United States. And he, and he recommends... Uh, tax changes, income support, unemployment benefits, a whole range of things. But there's one word he will never say. And that's the word, what word is that? That R word, redistribution. Redistribution is politically toxic. I assume David Cameron would never say it, and maybe Miliband would not even say it. Um, but they'd mean it. So redistribution is very important. But one thing that really struck me is is that even though you need redistribution, the public health approach has this beauty of embedding justice in the environment without redistribution. So if if mosquitoes don't have malaria, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, they're gonna bite you the same way, and if you're malarial-free, you'll benefit. If the air is clean, we'll all benefit. If the water, is, uh, runs fresh. If the, there are no, there's no rubbish uh, in, uh, uh, contaminating the streets, we all benefit. Now, that's not to say that two things are still not important. One is place, where you live is important, of course. And secondly, you do need still a lot of redistribution. But I think what Global Health with Justice suggests is that we have to not just raise our level, but raise it with a flattening out, a a horizontal flattening out between the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick. And I'll just give one anecdote, since Richard is is a tobacco um, uh, uh, expert, uh, of tobacco. And we were talking, Emily and Richard, about this new hot topic in tobacco, uh, not e-cigarettes, but tobacco endgames. Because it turns out that in my son's in with me in London now. He's been asking me, he says, well, I see a little bit more people smoking in London than in New York City. I said, well, actually, I think the data are pretty equivalent. 
both very low. And it turns out that in most major developed cities, um, we have fairly low prevalence. We, you know, we're getting, we're approaching 15%, 18%, and, but we're getting down there. But we may be at a point where there's nothing more we can do because all of the smoke-free laws, all of the taxation and everything, is, it's not going to push it down. And so the endgame theorists are trying to figure out how we can get it down to below 5%. That's the sense. And so I'm, I don't know how I got on this, but there's this little email list of about 10 tobacco zealot gurus around the world that only email with each other, and they've been arguing over endgames. But they all believe strongly in endgames. And so I, I, I posited an ethical thought experiment for them. You can see I like thought, thought experiments. And it's not the thought experiment you might think, which is the fact that the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union are exporting tobacco problems to developing countries, and it's rising there. And that's a sin in and of itself. The WTO litigation against Australia and, uh, and uh, Uruguay is, is unconscionable. No, it's, some, it's something completely different. What I said was, okay, suppose in New York or London... Uh, you could lower, you could achieve your end games. That is, you'd be below 5% um, prevalence. But you'd gain that prevalence in a way where there were certain populations who still had high prevalence. They would be reduced a little, but still high. In the 20, 30, 35% mark, the mentally ill, the homeless, prisoners, people who, the poor. I mean, smoking is the, the most economically segregated uh, risk factor there can possibly be. Maybe obesity is catching up. And so I said, would, would that be all right with you if we could achieve global health or tobacco health but without justice? Every single zealot said, yes, well, of course, yes. But it gives me pause because you need, to, you need to do two things. You need to improve overall global health, but you also need to do it with justice. Um, so with that, thank you for your time. I hope I didn't go too far over. No, that's fine. And uh, I'll leave it to uh, Richard's expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Richard Ashcroft is uh, now going to come up for about 10 minutes, and then uh, I'll open the floor. I feel so privileged to be here tonight, not because you're beautiful people, though you are, but because Larry Gostin is somebody who is second to none in his importance in the development of health law and his development of bioethics in the world today. Absolutely somebody who's had something interesting to say, something important to say about every ethical and legal and human rights topic in healthcare uh, over more than 30 years, who has worked with and influenced so many of the people that I rate most highly in the world, and um, is charming and witty and engaging, and it's just been a real pleasure listening to him, and I feel slightly embarrassed about responding to the tour de force he's just laid out before us. So buy the book. Buy all the books. There are many. 
Um, there's a wonderful book that he wrote a few years ago about HIV and the law. Uh, he's been incredibly influential in mental health and mental disability law internationally as well. And one of the reasons that I most admire Larry is those are the things he talks about. So many people in my field witter on about cloning. And with the greatest of respect to my esteemed colleagues who like to write about cloning and, you know, brain prostheses and this stuff and stuff, that's not the world we live in. It's not going to be the world we live in. We live in a world where terrorists, and I don't use the word lightly, can kidnap more than 230 girls and disappear them into who knows where, and we can do absolutely nothing to stop them. And doesn't seem like we can do too much to find them. We live in a world where garment factory in Bangladesh can collapse, killing more than a thousand people. And after lots of news and international reporting of this fact, seemingly very little happens. This is the world we live in, not a world of stem cells and wizzo treatments and uh, Natasha Vitamore and Max Moore's transhumanism and so on. This is the lesson that I think we should be taking from Larry and his work. It's the real stuff we should be focusing on, the real problems that affect people's world, the childhood of the Native American boy that he was telling us about, which is heart-rending, absolutely heart-rending. Having said that, what I responded to at an almost visceral level when I was reading the chapter that Larry kindly sent for me to have a look at so I could prepare a little for this evening wasn't the realism it was the utopianism now I'm a utopian and anyone that I teach will sooner or later go away with the idea that you can't do bioethics and you can't do health law without a clear utopian sense of the point of it all. My essential view about politics, political theory, normative political theory, normative bioethics, and why do any other kind, is that if you don't know what you want you won't be able to achieve it. If you don't know the world you want to bring into being, you will leave things as they are. Now, some philosophers, Wittgenstein most famously, says the point of philosophy is to leave the world as it is. And others, Marx says, yes, but the point is to change it. And I think the vision in Larry's work, and particularly in this most recent book, is to talk about changing the world and changing it in certain ways. Now, the paradox which I take from reading this chapter is that one wants to change the world, but one wants to change it in a way where it remains recognisably our world. And in a nutshell, I think that's what political action is. We don't want to live in a world which is utterly foreign to us. We don't want to live in a world where we will not have a place. This is another of my standing criticisms of the techno-utopians, by the way. They want to imagine a world in which you and I are unnecessary and indeed unimaginable. So, when I go and read the full book, 
as I am now champing at the bit to do. I've got certain questions I'll be taking into my reading, and please don't take these as challenges or standing criticisms of the arguments he's laid out instead. They're kind of reading guide questions. You know how when you buy books these days, there's always a, a list of questions for reading groups because readers aren't intelligent enough to make up their own mind about the book they've got in their hand. They have to be told by the publisher. Happily, Harvard University Press think of more highly of their readers. But the questions I'm taking to my reading group of one, but do feel free to join me, are the following. If there's a utopia in this book, and I hope there is, and I think there is, what is that utopia? What is the world that it bodies forth? One feature of that world, and I think Larry gave us a clue when he mentioned Rawls several times, is it's a liberal world. It's a liberal world. Now, liberal in the Rawls and Mill sense, not liberal in the Hayek and uh, Ron Paul sense, I imagine, but nevertheless, a liberal world, a, le- a world of individuals, a world of individuals who want to be free to left pursue their own projects, but need certain supportive structures in order to protect that freedom, and some of those structures are going to be health-related structures. It's not a world, I think, of perfectionism where there is an overarching concept of health that tells us what the institutions must be and what restraints on individual liberty must be in order to secure those health-related goals... But it is a world in which health is a primary good and it's one of the things that we should support. So it's a liberal world. So one of the questions would be, okay, what if we wanted these health goals but in some other way? What are the contrast cases? And for me, the contrast case, the interesting one, is not uh, the world as it is versus the world of the liberal utopia. It's what alternative utopias are there that remain utopian while not liberal. And in some of Rawls's work, of course, he talks about this. He talks about, uh, in the Law of Peoples, about a world in which you have a comity of states. I forget his exact language, but they're not all presumed to be liberal, just states in, in Rawls's own terms, but they are supposed to be the sorts of states that you can make a reasonable agreement with even if they don't govern themselves like you. So... Um, there is, of course, a long history in international relations of imagining those sorts of worlds where not all states are democracies, but nevertheless there is some sort of global order, global peace, global justice of a kind. So are we absolutely committed then to sketching a liberal world if the world we want is a utopian one? So that's one question. A second feature of Larry's world, Larry's utopia, is it's a world in which health is what motivates people. Now, if I had world enough and time and a large amount of money from the Leverhulme Trust, what I would like to do is explore that idea in some detail. Why is it in the 21st century that if you want to get political action and you want to extract large sums of cash from Mr Gates and Mr Gates' dad, what you have to do is frame it in terms of health. Why is it health we give two hoots about and not, say, poverty? or criminal justice, or happiness, although I'll come back to that point. Health is the thing. If we talk about health inequality, suddenly we're meant to get excited and say, that's terrible, we should do something about that. Economic equalities, although 
We've all read Piketty, haven't we? No, none of us. We've just heard about him. Um, this week, Piketty's very fashionable, and this week, economic equality is back on, the, back on the pages of the newspapers. But actually, for quite a while, economic inequality hasn't been the thing that's driven a lot of mainstream political thinking, whereas health has been very fashionable. Why is that? Why does health motivate people in a way that poverty doesn't? And is that a special feature of our contemporary society? And if so, why is it? Another feature of Larry's world is this, and this I did find somewhat striking, actually, given Larry's long and very honourable intellectual history, is it's a world in which physical illness seems to drive much of the agenda and mental, <coughs> mental well-being comes along for the right, but it isn't front and centre. Now, that may be unfair, and as I say, these are questions for the reading of the book rather than direct comments on what Larry said tonight, which can only give a flavour of, of the approach. But what if we put mental health first? What if it was mental health, mental well-being, happiness even, which drove our story? What if we were talking about global happiness with justice? What sort of world is that? Now, that sounds exactly like a classical utopia when you put it like that. But we substitute health for happiness, and the utopian vision is somewhat undercover. That's interesting, I think. Another feature of the world, and I find this, this could be where soft, cuddly socialists like me start to feel rather more at home, is that it's a world seemingly without much competition and enhancement. It's a world in which what we want is people to be well and to be relatively free of injury and relative, relatively comfortable, not necessarily re relatively long lives, but, but comfortable and, and reasonably healthy ones, and where what motivates people is everybody's general sense of well-being rather than trying to achieve your own advantage, your own edge, your own place, that bit ahead of the pack. Um, now, the reason I mention this is that, of course, in a lot of contemporary bioethics, it's precisely that image of competition and enhancement and improvement and getting that extra edge, which motivates a lot of work in the field. Um, although some people now talk about moral enhancement in ways that I find, frankly, bemusing. So a world without competition and enhancement. Now, that, again, is an interesting vision. But is it necessarily one that's one we can make sense of? I say the, the, this final observation with, with a degree of caution. It does seem to me quite an American, or if you prefer, quite a Western view of what a health future or a global future will be like. Now, that isn't to use the term American or Western in pejorative terms. It's, it's descriptive, I hope. But it did, I did find myself wondering, what if this book were written by a Chinese professor of health law. There are Chinese professors of health law. What would their account of these things be? How different would it be? When one considers the role of China in Africa, for example, and the, the Chinese approach to economic development as opposed to the Anglo-American or Western European models of economic development, they're seemingly quite different, seemingly driven by a quite different agenda, seemingly driven by quite different norms and values. So, what would a Chinese health future be? 
I don't know. That's one question that I want to, to think about when I read this book. So I've asked these slightly curious uh, questions, rather against the grain of the book, but I think it's testimony to the excitement and interest of Larry's project that I go away fizzing with these slightly peculiar thoughts because it seems so protean and engaging and exciting in the vision it offers that I want to put it through a kaleidoscope and see what else I can come up with. And I will close there, and I invite you with me to thank Larry for his excellent talk. Thank you, Richard. Um, thank you both. So we now have um, just over 10 minutes uh, if there are any questions that um, people would like to ask. We have microphones, so if you could wait till the microphone arrives. There's a hand there, and if you want to go up to... If you put your hand up and signal and the microphone will come to you. Okay, yes. So Please. thank you for the interesting argument. Uh, how you sort of contrasted public health and uh, health care and med- medications and sort of expressed surprise... How come we are not funding public health, but we are funding all those medications, etc.? And obviously, there is a strong and uh, very popular conspiracy narrative in, in, in this sense, saying that well, we obviously uh, support and, and give billions to medications because there are large money to be gained by healthcare corporations in medications, while there are not that much money to be made by corporations in the public health and clean water, etc., etc., uh, in these types of programs. And uh, I don't necessarily believe wholeheartedly, but I'm asking you as a sort of insider, is there a grain of truth in this, that there is, it's easier to fund large corporations with medications than sort of micro programs in clean water, etc. Thank you. Did you want me to start? I mean, in many ways, uh, Richard could answer that question better, but I'll, I'll, I'll begin. Um, yes, of course there's a grain of truth in it. Um, there's, more, there, there, there's, there's more than a grain. Um, but I often... I often think that I've written and thought about why the individualistic approach rather than the public health approach gets noticed. And one of the things you mentioned was uh, one of the things I I would have mentioned as well, which is, is that... I don't know. We have a fascination with technology, with with the wow factor. I mean, I, I absolutely loved when you talked about cloning at the beginning because, I mean, it's it's like my brother talking. I mean, it's just the way I think. Um, but we, have, but but this is really it drives bioethics. It drives policy. So, so I think the technology, biomedicine. The other is the rescue imperative. We'll do whatever it takes to get the little girl out of the well. Um, we'll do a heart transplant. Um, we'll, we, we, if there's a, a name and a face that's attractive to us, we will spend whatever it takes to get. But if they're nameless, um, children without vaccines, or the young women in Nigeria is a great example, um, we don't seem to marshal the same views. And then there's the kind of just we are an individualistic culture. We think of the right to health as 
me gaining certain treatments for what I've got rather than a communitarian point of view. I, I, I do know the top health law professor in, uh, in China, Wang Chengwan, and I think he would agree that the kind of a more of a community public approach might be better. But yes, of course. And don't get me started on things like the tobacco industry, food. So industry does play a very large role, including pharmaceuticals. I think one partial answer to the question concerns the nitty-gritty of institutions and where there are levers to make things happen and how some kinds of intervention can be framed as apolitical and others it's more difficult. So population health, it can sometimes be quite difficult to get political traction on because it looks like prescribing a set of norms for our whole society that seems to be the proper province of government rather than NGOs or international agencies. Thank you. There was a... Yes, okay. Hi. First of all, thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate it. Um, So I wanted to possibly talk about imagining global health uh, governance with justice. And so um, uh, David Fidler wrote in 2003 that SARS like marked a shift towards like a post-Westphalian health system in terms of it being defined by global health governance and a global public goods for health, which was a a new substantive policy goal. However, I kind of think that with SARS, for example, um, it was really only a threat to the United States and global health governance because it actually had a global reach affecting the U.S. and the West. And if you look at how funding for treating diseases is directly tied to states and their interests, like Western states are largely in control of what institutions, initiatives, and disease they want to fund. And infectious disease largely takes a global priority because of its global reach and priority over those diseases with higher mortality and morbidity. You can see this with neglected tropical diseases or mental health issues, like, for example, schizophrenia, which doesn't have this pic- like, you know, perfect picture which you can put on a brochure as opposed to someone that's you know uh, has malaria and this has also been enhanced by like the increasing connection with global health and security which has like been a way to put global health on the uh, policy agenda and I'm increasingly seeing this with uh, you know in Washington DC and a lot of the think tanks that I myself am like applying for jobs to and so I wanted to see what you kind of thought about this and if global health governance is is largely reflective of states interests and it's not really this like liberalist utopia that um, it's a to be by people like David Fiddler? Well, um, the, first of all, I just wanted to say that uh, when Richard talked about mental health, um, I thought it was a fair uh, criticism of what I've done, uh, and more than fair because mental health is very, very close to my heart and my passion. And uh, so I couldn't have agreed with you more. Um, I wanted to mention that because you had mentioned global health. You, you talk, what you're talking about is something I'm ac- I actually have an article coming out in the Journal of the American Medical Association called The Securitization of Global Health. Um, and it talks about the, a little bit about post-Westphalian kind of uh, dynamic. But I think it's fair to say that, uh, that state sovereignty is still very important but even more important, as you've indicated, I, I do agree with you, um, is are the, are the continuing powerful states. It's the European Union, it's the United States, that really, it's the Gates Foundation that really drive uh, the agenda. And I think they drive it in a way that is politically self-interested. And political self-interest is much more 
rapidly emerging infectious diseases. That, and the global health architecture reflects that. The international health regulations, the PIP framework, um, all of the, the, the uh, work we do on polio, on, um, on uh, novel influenzas, on mirrors, uh, things like that, that I think are, are proof, of, proof of concept. So I do agree with you. Okay, there's another question here. Have you got the mic? I have, thanks. Actually, I wanted to ask a slightly kind of utopianized, speculative question, if you wouldn't mind, please. I was just wondering if you could choose how to spend the World Health Organization budget, what would you spend that on? Oh, I'm actually on the WHO Director General's uh, committee on, on WHO reform, um, uh, which, uh, which will get nowhere. Um, and has gotten nowhere. Um, well, so many things I could say about that. The first is that, that, that the WHO right now only has control of less, about a quarter of its own budget. All the rest is controlled by the Gates Foundation, the United States, the European Union, uh, Norway. No organization and no organization can survive when it doesn't control its own budget. Margaret Chan understands that nothing she can do with that because of the, the, the Westphalian view of states. They're, they want to spend money on what they want, not anything else. And, and, they, and there's a huge mismatch with the global burden of disease. So there are little things we could do. Obviously, my utopia would be to spend much more on this population-based approach. Does that a little bit on tobacco, needs to do more. But in other areas like that, I, I would, I'd like, that's my utopia. But even if you couldn't get that, just to get some better alignment with the global burden of disease, I mean, it's laughable. They spend nothing on cancer, heart disease, respiratory disease, nothing on injuries. There are two people in mental health and there have been for a long time at WHO. It's, it, it really is any rational observation would know that that's wrong, yet we do it. I find the problem so insoluble that all I can say is I'd buy a nice mansion on Lake Geneva <laughs> because all the reasons, Larry's. I think we might have time for one more question if there's anybody who wants to put their hand up. Um, so there's a question over here. The last question, thank you. Hello, um, thank you for the interesting talks. Um, I had one point that occurred to me when you were speaking. Um, it, does the population health issue kind of boil down to prevention is better than cure, or is that an oversimplification of an oversimplification? And the second point... Um, was if we focus more on prevention or population health, would it be harder for organizations like the WHO to carve out their own role? Because if you step into an area like, for example, clean air, um, which comes with, you know, it goes back to what this gentleman said before, I think, about entrenched interests and so on, but you're going to be fighting a lot, a really big battle, and maybe the reason there's not so much political will to address those kind of issues is because... Um, because of those interests, basically, and you're fighting other people's, other organizations' battles. I suppose that's one way of putting it. Um, so those were my two questions. Well, I, mean, I think the classic 
uh, understanding of public health would be twofold. One, it, it is prevention-oriented, um, but that's not the only thing. And I don't mean prevention in terms of clinical prevention services like mammograms or blood pressure screening and things. I mean, I mean looking at the cause, the causes of ill health and injury down downstream and try, upstream and trying to, to, to deal with them then. So that, yes, it's prevention. The other part of it is, is that it's a population-based approach that really looks at the conditions in which populations exist and tries to, you can't ensure that people will be healthy. You can never guarantee that, but you can provide conditions that make it more likely. Uh, and so I, that's how I would, uh, I would define it. As far as the environment and, and climate change and the like, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the book on climate change, on trade, on food, on agriculture, on migration, because these things do need to have better balance with health. And I do think that WHO and others need to become much more knowledgeable and engaged in those various regimes. Thank you. I think we're out of time now. Um, before we thank our wonderful speakers, uh, I have two uh, notices, announcements. One is, if you would like to buy a copy of um, Larry's book, which is very happy to sign, at the special discount rate, there are some just outside of the lecture theatre. That's the first announcement. And I think, I think he really has whetted our appetite for this wonderful, wonderful piece of work. The, sec the second announcement is that if you'd like to join us after buying Larry's book for a drink upstairs on the eighth floor of this building, there are lifts just out here, you'd all be very welcome. Um, but now it, my final duty is just to say thank you, both of you. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you.